If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we just got off the plane from our trip to Orlando. What fun that was. It was super fun. I think one of the things that I enjoyed the most was actually getting to uh, hang out with Jim Harold from Jim Harold's Campfire. That was unexpected and amazing. And he was so cool. Like, he acted like we were like real podcaster people <laughs> and uh, kept referring to us as like real people. I don't know. Yeah. It just seemed like he was very gracious. We got off the plane in Orlando uh, to receive a message from Jim Harold saying, hey, let's get together for a, a drink. And uh, we were like, yeah, OK, no, sure, no big deal. Many sure. happy dance and then on with our day. Whatever. Yeah. So we met up with him at uh, the hotel bar and it was like five o'clock, I guess. And thought we'd, you know, he was being polite. Just, sure. hey, how you doing? Handshake, maybe a quick drink or something. Over three hours later. No big deal. We were like, uh, we don't want to keep you anymore, Mr. Harold. Yeah. You might you might have important people to meet with. And you two um, really had a fun thing going on where at one point I... Uh, was left double hanging uh, when I went up for a high five to you both and both of you ignored me completely. (laughs) And so I was just sitting there and I was like, well, I've committed now. I just have to sit here. And I just sat there with my arms up in the air, high fivey, increasingly getting more irritated with both of you. For like 18 seconds. Jim Harold and I were having a moment. Yeah. And I didn't want to break the magic. <laughs> we forced him to take a picture with us. Yes. And then we posted it on social media and some people reached out to us and said, he seems so nice. Is he really that? Let me just say something. He is genuinely a nice guy. Mm-hmm. How he sounds on his podcast, that's the way he is. He's a real nice, kind man. And we're going to have a sleepover. I don't know how his wife feels about that yet, but. uh, (laughs) We're just like camped out in their yard. Hey, remember how you said you want to hang out sometime? Here we are. Yeah. (laughs) Hope you like s'mores. We've built a fire in your yard. It's a campfire. What? Anyway, in all seriousness, thank you to Jim Harold. You, sir, are a prince. All right. It's your turn to go first. Okay. So Dorothy 
was born to Francis Rose Arnold and his wife, Mary Martha Parks Arnold, July 1st, 1885. She had an older brother, John, and two younger siblings, Dan and Marjorie. Dorothy was born and raised in Manhattan. She was uh, part of a very affluent family. The Arnolds were a prominent millionaire family in New York in 1910. Her father was an established perfume importer, and her family had very high social standings as a result. She was what you would call a socialite. I love this particular period of history. It was a weird time. The Victorian period in New York City just kind of edging into uh, Edwardian it was so much going on, and people are inventing things that are changing the way we live, the automobile, the airplane, the phonograph, movies. It's what an exciting time to be alive. Yeah, and if you didn't have like a lot of money, you were terribly poor and mistreated. That's probably the downside yeah, of there the might situation. Have been. There was but, a lot of disparity uh, amongst the dollars in, at sure. that time. Well, yeah, the Gilded Age. and mm. Yeah, I got you. But still, airplanes and movies and cars. Right. Good points. Thanks. So Arnold had graduated from uh, college and she was fluent in several languages and she was uh, trying to become a writer. She lived with her family in a mansion on East 79th Street in Manhattan. And in the spring of 1910, she'd submitted a short story to McClure's magazine. It was rejected. Arnold's friends and family, they were not the most supportive group. They were largely amused by her writing aspirations. Uh, It was seen as kind of a silly pastime. Well, that particular period of time, anything in the arts, whether it be uh, acting or writing, Mm -hmm. being an author, was kind of looked down upon. Right. So they did tease her pretty relentlessly uh, about having been rejected, Hmm. which is terrible no matter what you think of writing. And you're awful. (laughs) I'm sorry. That wasn't necessary. So she was embarrassed and she had asked her dad if she could take an apartment in Greenwich Village to write. And he said no, she was to stay living with them until she got a husband that they approved of and that if she were really a good writer, she could write successfully anywhere. She didn't need her own apartment to do so. So it's December 12, 1910, and younger sister Marjorie is having a debutante party coming up. And so Dorothy let her mom know that she was going to go shopping for a dress. Mom offered to go. Uh, She said, no, I'm going to go shopping by myself, but I will let you know if I find something that will be suitable for the party. And she takes off. It's like 11 a.m. They have uh, plans, allegedly, to have lunch at the Waldorf Astoria, but that is kind of wishy-washy. I'm not sure if that's fact or if that was mixed in with some other information, and I'm not clear about if there were plans to have lunch at the Waldorf Astoria. Maybe I should have just left that part out. (laughs) So she walked to Fifth Avenue, and a clerk at Park and Tilford's candy store uh, sold her some chocolates at 145. She said that she seemed to be in good spirits. Dorothy then went to Brentano's a bookstore on 27th and 5th and bought a book. She ran into a friend of hers and they chatted it 
up. Uh, Gladys King was the girl that she ran into. And she recalled that the two had talked briefly about Marjorie's debutante party and that Arnold seemed to be in good spirits. How could she not be? She She's already purchased chocolate and books. I know. It seems like the best day ever. That's my dream day. So her friend King recalled that uh, Dorothy said she was going to walk through Central Park. King last saw her on 27th Street shortly before 2 p.m. when she turned and waved goodbye for a second time, which I picture being a very movie moment. Like she waved goodbye and then she walked a little bit further and then she turned around and waved again like bye bye. (laughs) Everything was kind of glossy, like there was Vaseline on the lens. Exactly. And that's the last time anyone saw her. Oh, no. Mm hmm. So Dorothy didn't come home. And her parents uh, first were not terribly worried. They thought maybe she had stayed the night at her friend's house, but she did not come home for a second night and the parents became very concerned. There is some conflicting information about that timeline, about whether her parents started calling Dorothy's friends the first night or if they started calling Dorothy's friends the second night. Either way, they started calling her friends to see if anyone knew where she was. Shortly after midnight, the next night, Elsie Henry, one of Arnold's friends, phoned the family home to see if Dorothy had returned. She later reported that Dorothy's mother, Mary, had answered the telephone and told her that Dorothy had returned home. And when she asked to speak with Dorothy, Mary hesitated and said that Dorothy had gone to bed with a headache. All right. This this is sounding extremely suspicious to me. Especially the way that you're delivering the story. Thank you. You're welcome. So the next morning, the family contacted John S. Keith, who is a family friend and lawyer. And he arrived at the family home. He searched Dorothy's bedroom. He discovered that except for the outfit that she had been wearing that day, all of her clothes and personal belongings were in her room and that she had some papers that she had recently burned in her fireplace. But they assumed that that was probably like rejection notices from magazines, Sure, which seems like the appropriate response. Burn them! Burn them! (laughs) Over the following weeks... Keith visited jails, hospitals, morgues in New York City, in Philadelphia, in Boston to look for Dorothy. It turned out to be a fruitless search. So he convinced Dorothy's parents to hire a private investigator. In the investigation, it was discovered that she had rented a post office box in the months prior to vanishing. She kept the box's existence a secret from her loved ones, but it's believed that that was used for her writing mailings. Her rejection notices. So that her family would stop taunting her. Oh my God. Which is terrible. So after Keith and the private detectives could not find Dorothy, they persuaded Francis Arnold to call the police. How long had it been? January 25th, a month and a half later. Wow. They finally called the police. Hmm. So January 25th, 1911, reporters gathered at Francis Arnold's New York City office where he informed them of his daughter's disappearance and offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to her whereabouts, which is approximately $26,926.92. Good Lord. During the press conference, 
reporters had asked Francis if he thought it was possible that his daughter was still alive and had simply run away with a dude. Because always, <laughs> the first thought that people have is that it must be the girl's fault. Well, well, not just that, but that she couldn't run away on her own. Right. She would need the help of a dude. She would need a dude in order to do so. Francis vehemently denied this, stating... I would have been more than glad to see her associate more with young men than she did, especially some young men of brains and position, one whose profession or business would have kept him occupied. I don't approve of young men who have nothing to do. Which seems like a lot of information. Wow. Yeah. It's like he's setting the stage. It's just... um. Maybe a little more than they'd asked for. Mm-hmm. Like, they're like, do you think she could have run off? And he's all like, you know what? I think that it's really important for guys to have something to do. Idle hands are the devil's playthings. I don't think that you all realize how important it is that men have occupations slash hobbies that keep their hands busy. They need to get their asses to an AC more. And seen. And seen. So anyway, it was not just a random thing that he was ranting about. Authorities discovered that Dorothy had been secretly dating George Griscom Jr. He was from Pennsylvania and he was in his 40s at the time of her disappearance. And she was how old again? At the time, she would have been 20, I think. Okay. All right. I'd have to do some math. No, it's it's fine. Uh, just just uh, ballpark. He was about 20 years older than she was. All right. Apparently, Dorothy had spent about a week with her boyfriend several months prior. She said she was going to visit some college friends, but went to see him instead. She pawned a bunch of her jewelry to pay for a hotel room that they stayed at together for a week. Oh, my goodness. Right? That's pretty saucy for 1911. The worst part of that is that it was about $500 worth of jewelry, and she got about $60 for it, Uh, which in those dollars, I could do the calculator thing again, but it might take a bit. It's not worth it. Anyway. We get the point. It's very upsetting. So after returning home from that uh, fancy pants weekend, away her parents forbade her to continue that relationship because they thought that he was unsuitable despite that she continued to correspond with him and the two saw each other in november shortly before griscom left on vacation with his parents so he had gone to italy with his parents like he's in his 40s and he's all like yes mumsy and dadsy i'm going to go on vacation with you because i apparently don't have a real job and i spend all my time at craft stores that's something that i've totally made up on my own i'm sorry about no. that he, he never once went to an ac more. probably no So anyway, police questioned him. He said that he didn't know anything. There was a report by hotel staff that there was a woman at his hotel at one point who was veiled and appeared very agitated, but nothing really came of that. We don't know if that was anything. So while visiting with Griscom in Italy, mom and dad demanded that Griscom give them the letters that she had that Dorothy had written to him during their courting. Okay, why? They thought maybe there would be some clues in there about what had happened to her. Oh, I get it. Okay. Um, he said that there was nothing in them of any importance, that, that he had destroyed them. And in February of 2011, uh, he told the press that he had intended to come back to the States and marry Dorothy. Wait, are his love letters burned in her fireplace? I don't know. 
Okay. It's that's not something that we know. All right. Of course, Dorothy's parents were like, "No, you would not have married her when you came back to the states. Absolutely no." So, in the months following the announcement of Dorothy's disappearance, George Griscom spent thousands of dollars for ads in newspapers asking her to come home. By the end of 1911, police said that they still believed that Dorothy was alive and that she would come home on her own accord. Arnold's family, however, said that they had come to believe that she was dead. That's not good. Being dead is never good. So the police were like, um, no, (laughs) that we didn't say that. And Francis Arnold told the press that he believed from the start that his daughter had been attacked and killed while walking home through Central Park and that her body had been thrown into the reservoir. And he believed that because... That's what he believed. Okay. Police dismissed his theory because in the days leading up to Dorothy's disappearance, the temperature in New York City had dropped to 21 degrees and the reservoir was frozen solid. So the police were like, that's not... No. We probably would have found her if that was the case. Yeah, she would have skidded across the ice. It would have been like a Canadian curling event. So that's terrible, by the way. With a body. Yeah. That's that's awful. The police did search Central Park. They found no trace of a body. Uh, when the reservoir thawed, thawed, when the reservoir thawed that spring, they searched the water. They didn't find a body. Okay, so back to February. Francis Arnold received a postcard signed Dorothy that bared a postmark from New York City. It just said, "I am safe." The writing did appear to match Dorothy's handwriting, Hmm. but Francis Arnold said that he believed that someone had copied it from samples that were featured in the newspaper and that the postcard was a cruel joke. Around that same time, there was a jeweler in San Francisco. I'm just really excited about going to San Francisco. (laughs) I understand. He claimed that a woman he recognized as Dorothy had him engrave a diamond wedding ring for her on January 7th with the inscription to AJA from ERB, December 10, 1910. Hmm. So there were a lot of rumors about what had gone on. One that was spread about was that she might have fallen in the park and become uh, wounded and suffered from amnesia or something like that. Okay. Maybe on a banana peel. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It happened back then a lot, I hear. Um, But that didn't really add up since they did a really thorough search of like morgues and hospitals and such and nothing really turned Hmm. up. Another suggestion was that she had taken her own life, that she was tired of being rejected, uh, that her writing wasn't good enough. Uh, Her boyfriend, we don't know what the situation was with them. Uh, Her dad wasn't approving of her relationship. He wouldn't get her her own apartment, blah, 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 blah. So that was kind of rolled around as an option as well. But a more widespread rumor was that she had become pregnant and had sought an illegal abortion. Oh. And that she had died uh, during or after that botched procedure and then was secretly cremated or buried or something like that. So that rumor actually gained some credibility when years later, there was an illegal abortion clinic operating out of a basement home in Pennsylvania that was raided. And the guy that was running it, one of the doctors, uh, H.E. Lutz, testified to the district attorney that... 
Dorothy Arnold had died there experiencing complications from an abortion. The New York DA actually said he believed that that is what had happened. But Francis Arnold said that he thought the story was absolutely ridiculous and absolutely untrue. When you think about the fact that Dorothy's fella there was from Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not Mm. terribly unlikely, right? Right. And during that time in history, it was very easy for a woman to be shamed for mm. anything like that, even if, you know, it was a mutual agreement, you know, there was, it was consensual sex. If she got pregnant, that was her fault. And then, of course, there were no facilities or abortion clinics that were legal, that were available to women at that time. So, and obviously her parents weren't into this relationship and were so afraid of a public scandal that they didn't even report their daughter missing for a month right, and a right, half right. that they wouldn't have been into like paying for a legit doctor or looking in an abortion clinic right. for any evidence that maybe their daughter had been there. Right. Those and were different times. The incredible number of unsafe abortions that were happening when abortion was illegal was, I mean, the numbers are insane. And when you look at, and when you can see how likely that scenario might have been, it does add some credibility to it. Sure, it does. However, she went and bought some chocolate. She went and bought a book. Maybe that's because she thought she was going to be up in a hospital for a couple days after having an abortion. I don't know, but um, it doesn't... It's not an answer, but it's... It's a theory. It's better than she slipped on a banana peel and got amnesia. It's not an episode of General Hospital. And then slid down a frozen canal. Right. So after spending about $100,000 between private investigators and newspaper ads and travel to uh, talk to people uh, for their daughter, the Arnolds finally decided that was it. They rewrote their wills, uh, providing in them identical lines. I have made no provision for my beloved daughter, Dorothy H.C. Arnold, as I am satisfied she is not alive. Hmm. Which it sounds to me that especially dad was pretty satisfied that she wasn't alive immediately after she disappeared, which I still think is weird. But everyone grieves in their own way. So I guess (laughs) I can't, you know, Hmm. I don't know. That is the story of the disappearance of socialite Dorothy Arnold in broad daylight from Central Park. So there is no evidence as to what definitively happened to her. She just vaporized yep okay all right i think out of all of those possible scenarios i think the abortion clinic one is the most uh believable i think so too yeah that's the kind of thing that especially during that particular period of time that um people would keep on the down low so if something went wrong i mean even today people you know it's not something you'd hey i'm going to the abortion clinic you know people don't talk about it Back then, they really didn't talk about it. And so if somebody died in one of those backroom abortion clinics in those days, that was it. You you never heard from them again. That was it. It was all over. Yeah. Wow. And the the fact that dad was trying to shut down ideas that she was not dead um, Mm. right from the beginning, I just, I feel like there was... I don't know. Like I said, everyone's different. It's hard sure. to say sure, what sure. Pe- goes through people's minds. I'm not 
the boss of people's feelings. Although you really want to be, don't you? I do often, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, that thing in the middle. This thing in the middle, weird occurrences that took place between us and Orlando Lyft drivers. Number five. That time the Lyft driver started the conversation by telling us her son was a sniper and was shot off a roof in the Battle of Fallujah. But he's okay. Number four, the woman who picked us up in a turn-of-the-century French Quarter barmaid outfit and then explained, oh, she also works at Disney. You just got mm-hmm. off work, yeah. Sure, sure. Number three, the Lyft driver who is kind enough to inform us or actually warn us that sometimes women get tattoos. Number two, the Lyft driver from Colombia who explained that about 75% of passengers, after hearing he's from Colombia, immediately ask him about cocaine. And the number one weird interaction we had with a Lyft driver in Orlando was when he told us that his baseball coach once tricked him into eating a guinea pig. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. The Box of Oddities. Celebrity voice impersonated. So Friday morning, we were at Hollywood Studios at Disney World, and there was a message that popped up on our uh, social media from one of the freaks saying, hey, we're at Disneyland or Disney World, and uh, it'd be really cool to run into you guys. So you messaged back, we're at Hollywood Studios now. And she wrote back, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) So we sent her a picture of us and said, scavenger hunt time, find us, and you'll win this packet of Pop Rocks that's been in Cat's purse for a week. (laughs) She was so sweet and said that she hoped that she runs into us, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe eight minutes later. Immediately. (laughs) Jessica comes leaping over picnic tables going, oh my God. She found us. Oh my gosh, the cutest little nugget that you can possibly imagine. Hey, I found Kat and Jethro at Hollywood Studios. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so happy. Yes! (laughs) And I won some Pop Rocks. (laughs) I think she just wanted the Pop Rocks. I don't blame her. They were strawberry and delicious. (laughs) But she was uh, just adorable and sweet. It was really just a great experience. Absolutely. And now we can write Hollywood Studios off. Yeah, on our taxes. Yeah. Yeah, not that we're going to. No. No, no, that would be wrong. We can't really classify that as a business meeting. I feel like we can. (laughs) All right, it is my turn. So what you got for me? Here's what I got for you. Medical oddities and curiosities, bizarre things that happened in the world of medicine in years gone by. Okay. In 1799, there was a guy, he was like a 23-year-old American sailor. His name was John Cummings. He was out with his buddies. Uh, They went ashore for the night, he and his shipmates. (gasps) Was he not feeling well and he had to go to the hospital and they found out he was pregnant? No, but that would have been a great story. (laughs) He was in the French port of La Havre. Isn't that kind of cheese? It sounds like cheese. (laughs) Now, they were watching this guy who was a uh, self-proclaimed conjurer on the street corner. He was entertaining an audience. He was doing sleight of hand, and it looked as though he was swallowing knives. Okay. And it was was very amusing and entertaining for the group of uh, drunken sailors. Later that evening, when they went back to the ship, they were just ridiculously drunk. Cummings boasted that uh, he could swallow knives as well as the Frenchman. And of course, his uh, shipmates cheered him on and the sailor took out his pen knife, put it in his mouth and he swallowed it. One of the the spectators asked, how many do you think you could swallow? And he said, all the knives on the ship. What? So they brought him all the knives they could find. It was quite an impressive feat. No. But it was pretty stupid. Well, yeah. Yeah. There was one time I got a Dorito that kind of scraped the inside of my throat just the just the right way. Right. And that for days, it was yeah. bothersome to me. You did, for days. You did not swallow a ship's worth of knives. No, it was just a awkwardly... Swallowed Dorito. Broken Dorito. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Surprisingly, he survived this, and it became like a party trick for him over the years. He would be at a party with his buddies, and they'd all go, hey, let's get a bunch of knives for Cummings to swallow, and he would just swallow them up. Did um, did he pass these knives? Well... I have questions. Okay, yeah, that's a very good question. It wasn't long before he started to suffer some ill effects. Uh, he had some abdominal pain. Due to having a bunch of knives in his gut? Eating became more and more difficult, and uh, so he started to starve. He could not eat because his, his tummy hurt, and he died in 1809. Due to being filled with knives. This was like 10 years after he started swallowing knives. A very long illness. His doctors, they did not believe the knife-eating story. What? They didn't believe, you know, because people said, you know why he died? He swallowed knives for a decade. Um, But they didn't believe it. They were mystified. So they dissected his body, and they were astonished to discover the corroded remains of more than 30 knives. Oh, man inside this guy's stomach and intestines and one which had made its way down to it to his colon and had actually pierced his colon sure so not a good day for him no or a, a good decade really kids don't swallow knives now as someone who has ibs i don't know if we've talked about this i have irritable bowel syndrome and sometimes i feel like after i've had maybe a accidental pasta dish with some truffle oil in it. It feels like I've swallowed knives. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say it. Don't swallow knives. I think that's wise advice. Not only can it damage your innards, but it's a waste of cutlery. Right. If he had just started passing those, he could have made some money. Yeah. He could have sold them as cut to shit knives. Stop it. Cause did you ever read the poop knife the poop knife story on the internet? No. It was one of those uh, lists of things, and I think the the topic was things that you didn't know weren't normal in other families uh, until you were discussing that thing sure. with friends later on. Sure. And uh, this kid was talking to his friend about the poop knife. He was staying at his friend's house, and he was like, where's your poop knife? And his friend was like, literally what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> and apparently in their household they had a poop knife that they kept in the bathroom no. for when poops were too big no. and then they'd chop them up no. so that they would go down the thing no <laughs> this is just an inner poop knife this is one that's yeah, built into the system thing yeah. yeah when i was a kid we did not have a poop knife i i used a yardstick sure <laughs> all right the mystery of exploding teeth 200 years ago there was a clergyman from Pennsylvania. His uh, his name has somewhat been lost to history. They only refer to him as Reverend D.A. He got this excruciating toothache. Now, according to ExtraHistory.com, he was in so much agony. He could not find anything to relieve his pain. He decided to go out to his garden and uh, just take a walk, running up and down the garden at one point just because the pain was so great he was trying to exhaust himself. None of that worked. All the attempts were in vain. The next morning, he was again pacing up and down, this time in his study. He was he was holding on to his face when suddenly there was a sharp crack like a pistol shot and his tooth burst into fragments. <gasps> And apparently, according to him, it gave him instant relief. But he wasn't the only guy that this happened to during these days. 
Exploding teeth happened quite a bit. What? There was a woman who had a toothache. Her molar was aching. And she said it was so violent that it almost knocked her over. So is it like there's an infection in there and it forces the tooth? How does this, what is, explain it. Well, her toothache exploded with such violence. It deafened her for several weeks. What caused it? There really is no definitive answer. There are several theories put forward. They ranged from sudden temperature changes, which is weird because we have sudden temperature changes and it hasn't happened since that time. All the time. A more likely explanation is... They had fillings made with gunpowder? Well, that's pretty close. The chemicals that were used in the fillings may have ignited and I'm not sure what the what the chemical makeup of those fillings were in those days, but at this point, it's still unresolved. It's a mystery. Why did teeth explode in those days? Well, that sounds terrible. I had a wisdom tooth once that broke, and I didn't have insurance at the time. So I just had this broken wisdom tooth kicking around in my mouth, and every once in a while, like a chunk would come out, and I'd have to like spit it out, and it was just constant migraines, and it was terrible. It was weeks and weeks of just going into the bathroom at work and crying, sitting on the floor. Anyway, what was the point? You are so sexy. (laughs) Now, in the 19th century, when most of these stories took place, there were some weird cures for for various diseases. Right, of course. There was a guy, he was a German physicist. His name was Carl Friedrich Kanstadt. He was a specialist in childhood diseases. And he had a wonderful treatment for infant convulsions. If a baby had convulsions, he suggested that you would take a dove, a live dove, and hold it against the child's anus. That's the extent of the treatment. Take a dove. I'm sorry, what? There's a baby, and the baby's having convulsions, and you stick a dove up against his ass. And his theory... I'm sorry, what? (laughs) His theory was that the animal would absorb whatever was causing the convulsions. The animal would die and the uh, the attack would cease. Okay, so it was like transferring yeah. the, the convulsion through osmosis via a dove. It's kind of like exercising. Yeah. The okay, mm-hmm. but but of course the devil uh, has to have a host to go into, sure. so it's the dove in this case. Uh-huh. So many questions. Um, go one. Uh, does it have to be a dove? Could it be a chicken? That's a great question. Thank you. It never got that far. Okay, let me explain. Oh, but I have more questions. Oh, go ahead. Okay, why the anus? Um, why not any other orifice? I don't know, but my thought, my initial uh, thought to it is that the anus is where. All things bad are excreted. Okay, okay. So I see what you're saying. Maybe. I've had some pretty bad things excreted through my mouth sure. after uh, Jaeger nights. Um, I understand but, that, but you've probably, the things that are excreted through your anus, you would not want excreted through your mouth. That's true. Well, I don't want anything excreted through my mouth. Let's just be clear about that. Right. That's a good rule to live by. Um, okay, final, final question mm-hmm. for 500. Um, what was the process that led to this discovery? Okay, there really was no 
process. Um, I think Did it, it just, the idea just came to yeah, him? Just you know, of, we could do is we could press a bird up against his butthole. Yeah. And okay. Yeah, it would seem pretty eccentric. But interestingly, he wasn't the only guy who believed that it worked. There was the, the director of the Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, Dr. J.F. Weiss. He was called to treat a dangerously ill child. This was back in August of 1850. And he tried all the conventional medicines. None of it worked. So in desperation, he uh, said, hey, go get me a pigeon. And so he applied the, the pigeon to the child's anus. And it's recorded in a medical journal, quote, it gasped for air several times. It closed its eyes periodically. Then its feet twitched in spasms, and finally it vomited. The child made a miraculous recovery, although the same could not be said for the pigeon. After refusing its food, it died a few hours later. Um, All right, imagine you're a bird, mm -hmm. and you're taken from your home, sure. brought into a very strange, small enclosure building type thing. And then stuffed in a sick child's ass. Yes. Yeah. As if you are not going to gasp, twitch about, and then vomit and die. But the kid got better. I don't believe that. So I think they traded out kids. So the, <laughs> so the news, the local news, London medical journals and the newspapers, they called it the pigeon's rump cure. Oh, my God. See, this is how... Horrible, horrible things get spread. It's a good thing there wasn't the internet then That's because true. there would have been tons of YouTube videos about how, guess what? You put a bird on your kid's anus. You know what it would have been? It would have been the pigeon ass challenge. It would have been the <laughs> pigeon ass challenge. You'll so Dr. Weiss, well, he was pretty much ridiculed by everybody. They He wrote this up in a medical journal and they said, you're nuts. He, however, stood by his discovery or mm. his story. Mm -hmm. He rose above the ridicule and he urged further research. Quote, experiments with other poultry are necessary. Stop it so, right away. So it may have been that he moved on to chickens, but it's lost to history. And fortunately, so was that treatment. And then finally, in the summer of 1859, there was a 12-year-old girl. Her name was Sarah Ann, and uh, she was in London. She began to complain of nausea. Oh, had she been pressed up against a baby's asshole? Not because I, I hear that's what happens. Not that I know of. Okay. But her symptoms were not serious. Her parents thought, well, you know, she's probably got the flu or whatever. Until the next day and she vomited up a very large garden slug, which was described as alive and very active. Oh, God, that's awful. Then she threw up seven more. What? They were all various sizes. They were all alive. Her parents thought, yeah, maybe it's time to take her to uh, to the doctor. I have questions. Was were they okay? So had she had she eaten a bunch of slugs, or was there just like, or were they? Did they make incubating? Their, ah! uh, well, the doctor asked if she had eaten anything unusual. The girl said that uh, she told the family doctor that she liked when she was out playing in the yard, she liked to eat lettuce in the garden. And so the physician concluded that she had maybe unwittingly swallowed a family of young slugs while she was eating the lettuce and they had grown to maturity inside her stomach How? over the course of several weeks. This doctor was really on the ball. He also noted that uh, Sarah Ann only had one hand 
Uh, deformity he attributed to the fact that her mother had been frightened by a porcupine. Oh my gosh, stop. During pregnancy. Here we go again. <laughs> so the story gets out to the press and they were all like, really? Can a garden slug live in a human stomach? That was the headline of The Lancet. And a professor, J.C. Dalton, who was a professor of physiology from New York, decided to uh, do some experiments and see if he could get an answer. So he did an exhaustive series of experiments, which included dunking slugs into stomach acid to see what would happen. And the creatures, they all died within a matter of minutes and were completely digested several hours later. So he concluded that, no, slugs can't live in a human stomach. So the question was, what went wrong with Sarah Ann? Oh, God. It seems... Is it grosser than having lived in her stomach? Oh, God, there's a, like, they got into a cavity or something, didn't they? There was a cavity. Oh, God, there was a cavity. Are you leaving the room? Because... Am I right, though? No, you're not. Okay. No, no. Okay. Because I'm... Okay. Yeah, that's really... Yeah. Okay. That would be awful. I'm sorry. It seems... It's my brain just instinctively wants to figure out what's happened here. And of course, I come to the grossest conclusions. (laughs) Because that's how your brain works. That's why I love you. It's... uh, It seems very likely that her illness was mental rather than physical. Um, But whatever ailed her... It wasn't a family of slugs that were munching contently on fresh vegetables inside her stomach. It may have been more of kind of like that dead rabbit being born kind of thing. She she had swallowed slugs, but they didn't stay in there very long. And and, yeah, so. Oh, that's so much better. Okay. I said that was the last one, but I lied. That reminds me of that Michael Bolton song. Do you remember that? I'm going to say this one more time. Stop reminding me of Michael Bolton songs. Halitosis. Mm. Bad breath. Yep. It's inconvenient. It's embarrassing. Sometimes it's your boss. Sometimes it is your boss. Rarely does it kill people or is it dangerous. But in 1886, a man from Glasgow had really bad, bad breath. Halitosis. And it was so bad it would wake him up in the middle of the night. And one night, yeah, one night he woke up. His bad breath woke him up. And again, this is 1886. So he struck a match to see what the clock said. And when he attempted to blow it out, it ignited and it caused a tremendous explosion. Oh, my. Which, of course, immediately woke up his wife. He was, of course, you know, breathing fire. That would certainly rouse sure. someone from slumber. So they went to the doctor and the doctor didn't have any idea what was what was going on. He had never seen this before. But another Scottish physician, Dr. James McNaught, encountered a patient so badly affected by combustible belches that he had given up smoking for fear of explosion. Whoa. Yeah. So the doctor put a tube down the guy's throat into his stomach and discovered that uh There was an obstruction in the bowel that caused the man's stomach contents to ferment, producing large quantities of methane. Oh. Which, of course, is potentially hazardous. Um, However, this this condition served as an amusing party trick, and it was not as dangerous as eating knives. In the 1930s, 
there was a guy who suffered from this and he, uh, he was, at, <laughs> he was at a bridge party and he was trying to light a cigarette and he had this overwhelming urge to belch. And you know how like maybe you'll like belch and then hold it in your mouth and like exhaust it through your nose. So mm-hmm. people don't know that you're, you know, belching. Sure. Well, he electrified his associates by producing two quote fan shaped flames from his nostrils. Whoa. I want to be able to do that wow. without the fermenting stuff. Or the bad breath. Or the bad breath. Anyway, weird medical conditions throughout history. There's your box of oddities. Love you. I really liked that. I mean, it was terrible. Yeah. but What, what was nice. your favorite? I think the butthole birds. Yeah, the butthole birds. That was weird. Now, that wasn't a weird medical issue as much as it was a weird means for a cure. But... um I did enjoy that. But you're not advocating stuffing birds in people's anuses. Never children. Adults? If they're consenting, would that be okay? No. What about dead birds? No. You put a turkey in your ass? (laughs) Were you able to get all the way through that sentence (laughs) without? No. 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 Let's just call it quits for the night. One of the things that we were in Orlando doing was talking about the premium channel yes on himalaya yep and uh, we met so many people who were doing the same thing who had premium content available or uh were subscribing to our premium content and they were just so jazzed about the app and about the bonus features yep and you can subscribe to our premium channel on the himalaya app there's a little thing it says hey go premium and you get ad-free episodes you get them a day early You get access to our super secret chat room. That's where all the cool kids hang out. Stop it. And a bonus episode once a month. Oh, we got to do that. We do. (sighs) Anyway, you can find more information on that and also any of our live shows that are coming up by going to theboxofoddities.com. All right. Well, now I have to go soak my feet because I have blisters from walking all. We walked eight miles yesterday. From Monday to Saturday, we walked 32 miles. Yeah, it's a lot of walking for me, considering... You average about 1.6 a day. 1.6 meters <laughs> a day. Anyway, we look forward to seeing you on Thursday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2019, all rights reserved Now that I'm home, different parts of me are starting to hurt Mm. Have you noticed this? Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here And I'm Gabby And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from.
Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.